Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments. And this is a really important topic. It's a topic that actually isn't addressed a whole lot, and you're going to hear from our expert speakers a lot about how you can manage your eye and vision changes um, related to your cancer treatments. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it's because of that collaboration and your interest in this really unique topic, it's an important topic, um, that we have so many of you on the call today. Now we have 554 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, and we have international participants from Algeria, Brazil, Canada, France, Greece, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world, and it really is a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And today's program is supported by the Aline Roos Memorial Trust, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And they have been supporting this program now for a few years, and we really appreciate that support and focus that they've had on this particular topic and program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Uh, Dr. Fleischman is founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, Accreditation Surveyor, American College of Surgeons, Commission on Cancer. And Dr. Fleischman is going to address an overview of eye and vision changes related to cancer treatments, causes and risk factors, discussion of common eye and vision changes, and communicating with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Fleischman. Hello, everybody, and thank you for participating in this call. I am really impressed that uh, Cancer Care has chosen to use this as a topic because it seems to me this is one of the underserved issues in cancer treatment today. It seems like until recently we didn't think about uh, the problems with the eye and how they affect quality of life and the kinds of um, bridges we need to make to our ophthalmology colleagues to be able to help uh, patients and their families with cancer. And I guess it's because uh, we have newer treatments and more things happening, and also because people are surviving now longer with their cancers, which is a good thing, but we need to make sure we have the services in place to help everybody live as well as possible. So I, I thinking about... Um, how to introduce the topic. I tried to go through uh, over the years and patients that I've seen and the kinds of things that they uh, asked about many, many times um, left me like, I'm not sure, and we need to speak to an ophthalmologist who is um, familiar with cancer treatment. So these are the kinds of things that I remember hearing from patients and families. Uh, often um, patients would talk about their eyes being um, either too wet or too dry, tearing or too dry, not enough, um, not enough tears to lubricate the eye, and um, that caused quite a bit of discomfort um, 
often people turn to over-the-counter eye drops. Sometimes that's the right thing, and sometimes not. So it would be it was helpful to have an ophthalmologist to turn to. I uh, wasn't sure, thinking through um, the menu of things that it could be in my mind if this was uh, due to an allergy or uh, tear ducts were blocked or it was a side effect of a medication. Uh, when I tried to do a little um, self-teaching uh, self about this, I learned that um, certain kinds of chemotherapy uh, can actually cause tear duct problems. Um, some of the hormonal treatments um, can dry the eyes like they dry every other part of the body as they suppress estrogen or uh, even testosterone. Um, and th that particularly people complained about feel the feeling of dryness right around the eyelashes on the part of the eye that isn't quite inside the eye and doesn't get lubricated as you blink, but on the outside. And um, it, it seemed like we needed to know a little bit more about why that happens and what to do about it. Often people complain about blurred vision, and um, often people um, thought that that was part of, a, part of a side effect of the chemotherapy. But in thinking about it critically, it, it seemed to me on the first line that um, it was much more from the anti-nausea medicine, the anti-emetic medication, or the pain medicine, many of which, or practically all of which, cause some type of a change in the parts of the nervous system that would affect vision. Sometimes that's tied in with um, uh, hesitancy in urinating or constipation. So it made sense that um, people complained about blurry vision, and it seemed to change throughout the course of treatment along with the medicines that were used, which made sense because of pain medicine was used for a period of time or anti-nausea medicine was used for a period of time, the symptom would get worse and get better. Often, um, I know one of our nurses said, don't go to the eye doctor now. Uh, go a little after this stabilizes because otherwise um, the eye doctor won't, know, won't be able to um, help give you a good refraction or, or test your vision and make sure it's as clear as possible. I'm not sure that's the right advice, so I be happy that the ophthalmologist would weigh in on that. Some of the medicines um, uh, that we use um, can um, make cataracts worse. Uh, again, I'm not sure that they cause cataracts develop where that one didn't exist, but as cancer patients um, can be on the older side, it's likely that a cataract is developing. And if somebody reads that in a side effect or the medicine makes it a little worse, it seems as if it's a side effect of the medicine, too. So I think we need to um, turn to our colleagues for better management of that. Um, it's common in my experience that patients will rub their eyes innocently um, uh, if, with dirty hands and sometimes get infections in the eye, and sometimes that would be uh, follow the pattern of being more subject to infections anywhere in the body as the um, chemotherapy or the radiation therapy lowers our re resistance a little bit. So again, um, turning to our colleagues is very helpful for situations like that. Um, sometimes people complained about loss of their eyelashes um, as the, their hair receded um, in, on their hair and other part, uh, on their scalp and other parts of their body, and that was um, very disturbing to, to some people, um, as you would expect and um, again, left the eyelids irritated underneath. 
So we owe that to some types of chemotherapy, perhaps sometimes some kinds of radiation therapy if we're in that area, but again, I, I defer to our colleagues for a discussion of that. Um, it's occasionally a patient would complain about a floater. And um, I remember back uh, when a, a patient went directly to the ophthalmologist from our office because we were worried that it was a serious problem. Turned out not to be, but uh, we will learn that a floater that is different, that comes and stays for a little while, needs immediate attention, and we were trying to follow through with that as if the patient didn't have cancer. So uh, floaters can be a problem. Uh, also, if a patient said, you know, I, I can't see on the right side the way I used to, um, that's something where we would want to respond very quickly and have an ophthalmologist test visual fields. So these are uh, the things that I remember from seeing patients over the years. I, I may have left a few out, but I think it's a somewhat comprehensive list. The important thing that we really all need to remember is that these changes can be important. They're important to a patient, certainly, but they can be significant medically. And it's, it's really good for patients and families to remember to report them to the primary oncology team. In most places, that's the oncology nurse and the oncologist of whatever sub subspecialty in oncology. Mention it. It could be important. It may not be important, but it needs attention. And certainly, there are some things that can be done without an ophthalmology consult like uh, some moisturizers to the eye or something simple until the ophthalmologist can be seen if it's necessary. So um, don't be shy. These are important things, um, and uh, it's, it would be a really good idea for you to make sure to mention them to your team as they're happening instead of um, worrying about it silently. So these are the kinds of things that uh, I've heard from patients and families over the years. Um, hopefully I didn't leave much out. But I think by the end of the call, we'll have uh, looked at the full spectrum of problems that occur during cancer, maybe from the cancer, maybe from the treatment, and what we can do about it. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really superb and just a wonderful introduction to the entire call, covering a lot of key issues. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Dan Gumbos. Dr. Gumbos is professor and section chief Section of Ophthalmology, Department of Head and Neck Surgery, Division of Surgery, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Associate Professor, Ophthalmology, Baylor College of Medicine, Ophthalmology. And Dr. Gumbos is going to address tips to manage dry or watery eyes, loss of eyelashes and eye infections, recognizing changes in vision and field of vision, floaters and flashing lights, and what to do about them and how eye products can help you cope with eye and vision changes, and the role of the multidisciplinary team in coping with these changes. I'm going to turn this program now over to Dr. Gumbos. And thank you, uh, Carolyn. I very much appreciate uh, speaking with you in the audience today and, and my colleagues who are here on the line as well. Um, I'm going to start first with the role of the multidisciplinary team because I think um, that's a key aspect of a lot of the eye care uh, that a cancer patient has to address. Most uh, centers, most uh, cancer specialists work very closely with each other. And the key with any uh, ophthalmic ocular uh, eye symptom is trying to establish whether this is uh, related directly to your cancer care 
whether it's related to treatment, whether it's related to the cancer itself, or related to uh, normal uh, ophthalmic issues that occur in people who don't have cancer. And the most important thing is this uh, relationship and communication that occurs between the ophthalmologist and the uh, medical oncologist, because it's an understanding, it, it has to begin with an understanding of not only what is the current cancer, where, what, is, what is its current situation, what are the therapies that have been administered to the patient, and figuring out whether the symptoms that are occurring are direct, directly related to, treated, uh, to recent uh, uh, treatment, and that directs our therapy and our approach to, to managing the, these problems. And so the first thing I would advocate for is, is that as you interact with your oncologist, again, make them aware of any new symptom that you're having and ask them if they work specifically with a particular eye care practitioner, particular ophthalmologist. We also have a field of ocular oncology uh, within their institution or within their network because you really want to interact with someone who's familiar with uh, the particular symptoms and, and, and issues that arise. There are a number of therapies that are established, but there are a number of therapies that are new, and a lot of it is just a familiarity of what are the likely anticipated toxicities of these therapies. Uh, one of the issues that comes up frequently is dry eye and watery eye, and we put them together because, paradoxically, sometimes a watery eye actually is a manifestation of dry eye. And so if you're feeling like there's a foreign body sensation, if you're feeling like the eyes are particularly dry or watery, it is best to uh, have that sorted out and assessed by an ophthalmologist because you first need to decide what the problem is. It may be related to a loss of eyelashes, dysfunction of the glands that produce tear film. And this is not a trivial symptom. A severe dry eye can be very problematic, not only affecting vision, but quality of life as well. Uh, there are certain uh, treatments like radiation and certain chemotherapeutic agents that can lead to loss of lashes. Uh, severe dry eye can be associated in post-transplant patients. So if you've had a bone marrow transplant, particularly if you have any signs of graft-versus-host disease, that can be associated with a severe dry eye problem. Now, um, recognizing whether you're having visual symptoms is, is another uh, important feature. And sometimes patients will not be aware that they are having visual problems. One thing that one can do very easily is simply to cover one eye and compare whether you're having visual problems in one eye or both eyes. And sometimes simply by covering one eye, you'll realize, oh, one eye is seeing well, but I'm having visual problems in uh, the contralateral eye. And that is certainly something you should bring to the attention of your medical oncologist if this is something new or different than what you've uh, been used to. Floaters and flashing lights are uh, not uncommon symptoms in the general population. And they may be something completely normal and nothing to worry about. However, they may represent a very serious and in some cases sight-threatening problem. And so whenever you have new flashing lights, particularly associated with new floaters, that is something that you should immediately bring to the attention of your oncologist and your physician and most likely make an immediate assessment to an ophthalmologist for a dilated eye exam. This may be completely unrelated to your treatment. It may be directly related to your treatment. It may be, frankly, directly related to your cancer. And there is no way simply from those symptoms for either the 
medical oncologist or the patient to determine whether this is something that can be, uh, that this is truly an emergency or not. And it is best to not ignore those symptoms, but to have that uh, addressed immediately. Now, once a patient has had uh, a proper assessment, there are certain products, particularly with dry eye, that can help with these symptoms. If it's a mild dry eye, then there are a number of uh, very safe and effective over-the-counter products uh, that can be used. Um, one has to be careful, though, as to the nature of the products that one is using. So many products, such as uh, those that are listed to, quote, get the red eye, get the red eye out, may not be in your best interest because they can have vasoconstrictors and be more problematic. A good product for dry eye is, is generally something that is over-the-counter, that is used for lubrication. Uh, I generally prefer products that are preservative-free because pre the preservatives are less likely to cause irritation and problems. If a patient continues to have significant dryness, then um, that's something that's, again, best to be assessed by their ophthalmologist. They may recommend uh, products that are more gel-like um, uh, or in severe dry eye cases, there are thick ointments that can be used uh, to help with uh, the, the, uh, the um, dryness itself, particularly at night, they can be quite effective. Sometimes your ophthalmologist will put a little plug in the drainage system of the eye so that your own natural tears can remain um, in, the, in the eye and, and help significantly, allowing you to use less frequent artificial tears. Going back and coming full circle to the role of the multidisciplinary team, the way in which an ophthalmologist really assesses whether these floaters, flashing lights, dryness are related to your cancer, your cancer management, is a full understanding of the treatments that you've had. So when you go and see your ophthalmologist, if they don't have an integrated electronic medical record system where they have immediate access to all of your care, it's very important to be able to communicate with your ophthalmologist about some basic aspects of your cancer management. What type of cancer do you have? What stage of cancer were you diagnosed with? And what therapies have you been administered? And if you can be even more specific in saying the types of the natures of drugs that you've been administered, we as ophthalmologists have been trained to know that certain drugs are very commonly associated with ocular toxicities. In fact, sometimes the oncologist will even go ahead and prescribe topical steroid drops under certain circumstances when we know that a certain agent is very likely to cause ocular problems. Now, there are some things such as cataracts that have been mentioned earlier today. Some of those can be directly related to the management of, uh, of therapy that you've had. We know that some drugs, particularly steroids, which are commonly used uh, in, in many cancer um, uh, treatment plans, uh, certainly increase the risk of cataract formation, as well as radiation when it's administered close to the ocular structures. Uh, Age-related cataracts can occur as well. And the nature of the cataract can be very visually uh, disabling. And so, again, the discussion of whether to have that cataract addressed, whether it should be deferred, this is where the multidisciplinary team approach occurs, where the ophthalmologist discusses things with the oncologist specifically. Finally, there's another aspect to the multidisciplinary team, which is the low vision rehabilitation therapist. There are going to be scenarios where, unfortunately, the ophthalmologist cannot regain whatever vision is lost, particularly 
circumstances where there has been damage to vital structures like the optic nerve or potentially the brain, central nervous system, uh, where management has uh, impacted those structures. This is where a low vision therapist can be very uh, effective. They're not able to bring back vision, but they can provide critical approaches and techniques to provide an improved quality of life. For instance, if the peripheral vision has been affected by a brain cancer, the cancer affecting uh, the visual structures of the brain, a low vision therapist can provide mechanisms by which that visual loss can be mitigated and the patient can still maintain uh, an excellent quality of life. Here again, it's all about the members of the team reviewing the care that was provided, being able to understand what are reasonable treatment options, and then uh, approaching things from that perspective. Um, so I think, uh, uh, Carol, I think, uh, uh, Carolyn, I, I think as we go through this, again, it's just a general appreciation that um, various symptoms may or may not be related to uh, recent cancer management, but it's that multidisciplinary team approach that uh, allows the ophthalmologist and the oncologist to determine uh, whether these um, symptoms or problems will resolve on their own or will require uh, more intervention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gumbos. That was really excellent and very comprehensive. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Brian Marr. Dr. Marr is Associate Attending Surgeon, Ophthalmic Oncology Service, Department of Surgery, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Marr is going to address the key role of your eye care provider, sharing information about your cancer and its treatment with your eye care practitioner, ophthalmology assessment and care before and after treatment, and clinical trials, how research contri contributes to your treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Marr. Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, I'm glad everybody's here to, to address this important point. My role today is to try to um, get the plan on how to manage your eyes when you're going through cancer therapy. A lot of times you can be overwhelmed with the a diagnosis of cancer and, and focus on the area that's being treated, but it really affects your entire body, like some of our specialists have, have mentioned. And it's, it's nice to have a plan for the eyes as well. So what I, I advise most patients to do is to try to coordinate between their ophthalmologist and oncologist. And this can be done different ways. Uh, depending on the type of center that you're in or your location, I would inquire to your your oncologist, is there an on-site ophthalmologist? Is there someone that they're familiar with in, that they use for, for problems of cancer-related problems in the eye? Some larger centers uh, will have those, and it would be nice to know that where they are and kind of maybe even make an introduction to them. Um, and also just to coordinate almost like a baseline examination of your eyes. Um, you, you can sometimes get sidetracked by all the, the treatments that you're doing for your specific cancer and kind of neglect your baseline status of your eyes. So most of the times, if you haven't been to your local ophthalmologist or if you don't have one, it'd be a good time to get updated, have a regular examination, even if you're not symptomatic, uh, to kind of get a baseline before you start your therapy. And that can always be helpful because if there is a change during your treatment, then you have something to compare to. Now, in certain centers or in certain types of treatments, people undergo clinical trials to have new drugs. And during these treatments, certain medications will have known 
uh, ocular effects. And through that center that's sponsoring the clinical trial, they'll usually have required examinations with ophthalmologists. And it's um, usually important to find out where those ophthalmologists are, uh, schedule your appointments, and it's kind of a requirement for, the, for going on to the clinical trial to get specific baseline testing, just like you would with your normal ophthalmologist, but this is specifically for the uh, clinical trial. And um, it's important to follow up with those, and those are, are pretty much required for the clinical trials. But for non-clinical trials, I think it's important to, first of all, take it in a two-step method. One is talk to your oncologist and say, um, can I have a list of my medications that are new? Uh, some of them uh, will be familiar to an ophthalmologist, some won't. But have that uh, list kind of written down. And then when you go for your baseline examination, take those medication lists to them and, and explain to them you know, what treatment you're going through. That way, when they're doing an examination, they'll have a, a higher sense of what to look for and uh, make sure that they're not overlooking things that may be associated with your medication or, or treatment. Conversely, um, the ophthalmologist, if you have any underlying conditions like cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, it's important to let your oncologist know what type of medications you're, treat, you're treated with, like certain topical drops. A lot of people don't think of those as medications, but they're important, and they can cause uh, cumulative effects of the eye in concurrence with your, your treatment. So if you go to your oncologist, get a list of medication, and give it to your ophthalmologist, in turn, if you're under any treatment for the eyes, you should get a list of the medications. Some people receive uh, interocular injections for macular degeneration or topical treatments for glaucoma, and it's important that the oncologists know those uh, so they can um, you know, manage any uh, complications that come up with that. So the communication between both of those is somewhat your responsibility, especially if you don't have an access where they're all integrated. As Dan mentioned, you know, certain centers do, certain don't, but it's always a good idea to kind of coordinate that yourself. That way you know, oh, I have a baseline cataract and, yeah, it may get worse. Or if I'm experiencing these problems, it may be related to this, and you can get that checked. Um, the other thing about um, scheduling frequent follow-ups, I think it's important. Um, basically, as some of the other specialists have mentioned, uh, if you have a symptom, don't try, don't ignore it. Sometimes during active treatments, uh, they can affect systemic medications or underlying conditions if you have diabetes or if you have high blood pressure or if your immune function is compromised. These can all have effects on the eyes that your regular ophthalmologist wouldn't um, recognize uh, unless he was aware that something was happening. Like people that are put on steroids, sometimes that can elevate your blood sugar temporarily and cause a change in vision. That's a reversible change, but if uh, the ophthalmologist doesn't know that you just had a, a pulse dose of steroids, then they wouldn't um, readily know that that's the cause of that. So communication between both parties is, is really important and trying to kind of help bridge the gap if it's not already set up for you is, is one of the things that I think sometimes is neglected, especially with all the other treatments and uh, therapies that you're going through. Uh, but it should be... Um, uh, communicated by you. And I think that's kind of the key thing is to open up a big communication between what's going on in your eyes 
and what's going on with the rest of your treatment. And that way you can uh, make sure that little problems don't become big ones. And so that's kind of a, a sum, summation of what I want to get through to you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mar. That was really excellent as well and really um, a lot of wonderful material. I know there will be wonderful questions for all of you during the Q&A, and um, I would like to introduce um, our next speaker, Stacey Lewis. Um, Stacey is an oncology social worker, and Ms. Lewis is our program coordinator at Cancer Care, and, and she will be addressing the psychosocial uh, services and programs at Cancer Care Office as well as the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Lewis. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm also very happy to be a part of this program today. Um, we've been talking about managing your care and quality of life, and I'd really like to speak about the importance of creating a support network as part of your care and the ways in which cancer care can be a part of that network. So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care's programs include individual counseling, which we offer face-to-face -face in our New York City area and over the telephone nationally, support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face, as well as over the telephone and online nationally and internationally, educational programs like this one, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, as well as some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer impacts a person as well as his or her family and friends. We are also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle the problems that often accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and the psychological impact. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with your diagnosis in all of the areas that I mentioned are an important part of your healing process. As you may know, cancer affects not just the person, but their entire support system. Asking for help, whether you are a patient, caregiver, or loved one, by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for help is a sign of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group can be a way for you to connect with others who are going through similar situations and are likely experiencing similar issues. Individual counseling can provide a space that is just yours to voice any concerns you have and navigate the issues I mentioned earlier. The connections you make can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer and their loved ones feel. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with your diagnosis and treatment. I wanted to mention that at this time, we have a very robust online support group program. And if you go to our website, cancercare.org, you'll see a listing of all of our different support groups. We have many diagnosis-specific groups, as well as general groups for individuals, their caregivers, as well as the bereaved. If you're interested in any of Cancer Care services, you can call our Hope Line at 800-813-4673 or visit our website, which again is www.cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of information not only on our support programs, but as well as your cancer diagnosis, treatment, and additional ways of coping. On our website, you can also register for future workshops, listen to previous workshops, and order a variety of our free publications. We've learned a lot from today's program, and there's a lot of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. Should you have any questions about today's workshop or any of the services I mentioned, please don't hesitate to contact us. And lastly, please remember that you are not alone. 
Cancer Care Services are here to help you and your family. Thank you so much for your attention, and thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Willis. That was really extraordinary, and thank you for actually identifying all the services that people can access from Cancer Care um, and, and a wonderful resource for everybody here. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. And I'm going to ask uh, Candice to explain to all of you how to queue for questions. Some of you are already doing this on the chat feature, but nevertheless, um, uh, Candice, if you could explain to everyone how to ask their questions, either, um, and that would be terrific. And we'll take as many questions as we can. If we don't get your question before the call ends, I will explain to all of you how to get your questions answered. So, thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from the line of Emil S. Your line is now open. I was, uh, I'm a cancer survivor and I have dry eye. Do you recommend uh, over-the-counter meds as opposed to prescription meds for dry eye, floaters, or cataracts. And I was recently diagnosed in the early stages of cataracts. And do you recommend uh, having my cataract surgery sooner than later or wait till the prescribed time? Excellent. Thank you, um, Emil. Good to have you on the call for your question. And Dr. Gumbos, um, would you address that question to begin with? Sure. I think, you know, the first key thing is is that the decision has to be made with an understanding of your overall cancer care, how long you've been out, uh, what was the etiology and reason of the dryness. And so the first thing I would say is, is, of course, get a comprehensive eye exam by an ophthalmologist who is familiar with cancer care, who's familiar with the treatments that you've had. Because the first thing is sort of based on your history is how much of this is thought to be reversible how much is thought to be permanent, and then also to get a sense of how severe, mild, moderate, or severe this dryness is. You know, a severe dry eye can not only be uncomfortable, but can be really uh, put the eye at risk for significant ocular complications. And so it's not necessarily how you feel as much as how the eyes look. And there are objective ways in which the ophthalmologist can assess the tear film and sort of decide. I would not self-medicate until that first approach is taken. I don't think any harm will come if you start some over-the-counter drops, but really you need to have an assessment of you know, where we stand in terms of the severity of things. If it's mild, your ophthalmologist may simply go with lubricating drops. If it's more severe, they may try some plugs. Occasionally they may try some prescription medications as well. As it relates to cataract surgery, it is critical for the ophthalmologist and the oncologist to have a discussion before any consideration of cataract surgery be performed. There needs to be an understanding of where, again, you are in therapy, uh, what therapies you've had, what is the uh, uh, thought process in terms of your uh, remission, uh, are you thought to need any future therapies that may lead you to an immunocompromised state, one has to recall that the majority of cataract surgeries performed, the vast majority, uh, are elective procedures. That means you and the physician decide and the surgeon decide when it's an appropriate time for it to happen. And it has to be based partially on your symptoms. You don't want to be in a situation where you're having elective surgery and then the oncologist is planning to put you on a therapy that may immunocompromise your state. On the other hand, 
cataracts can be visually disabling. They can severely impact quality of life. And sometimes there needs to be a discussion between the ophthalmologist and the oncologist as to how disabling a particular cataract, uh, a, a particular patient's cataracts are, and whether their therapy for cancer needs to be modified. Uh, also, for some patients, the cataract surgery can be a little bit more challenging after after uh, oncologic care, uh, after certain forms of therapy. So I'd certainly ask the surgeon to make sure that they have previously operated on or are comfortable with performing cataract surgery in a patient who's recently been treated or has been treated with uh, a cancer management. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, thank you for that very comprehensive answer. I hope that helps, Emil, and you know, I hope you'll take this back to your treating healthcare team. Did anyone want to add anything to this very comprehensive answer? No, okay. great, great answer. Excellent. Okay, well, now um, our next question comes from one of our online participants um, from Darcy. Is there any research linking use? Oh, actually, I'm going to get this question to Dr. Marr, actually. Um, is there any research linking use of tamoxifen for breast cancer and the development of macular holes? So I wondered if, Dr. Marr, if you could address that to begin with, and we can involve others as well. But Great. Could you, could you repeat that one more time for me? Yes. Um, is there any research linking... <clears throat> linking use of tamoxifen for breast cancer and the development of macular holes? So tamoxifen is a uh, hormonal therapy. And the it, it ha Dan, maybe you could help me with this. It, has it been related to macular holes? I, I'm not particularly familiar. You know, there, uh, tamoxifen for quite some time was a drug that we were very worried about uh, because it caused a lot of retinopathy. And then as uh, as clinicians used lower dose, we saw less and less of that retinopathy. It used to be a drug that we would routinely be asked to see patients and screen them. Now uh, it's quite rare for us to be asked to uh, screen patients on the typical doses of tamoxifen, and so as a result, uh, I think you and I would both agree this isn't a this isn't a drug that we're asked to see unless patients have active problems. I'm not particularly familiar with a particular study suggesting that uh, there's an increased rate of of macular holes with use of this medication, and and I would think either someone like Dr. Mar or myself who see a lot of patients treated with this medication would have probably been aware of, uh, right. of, 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 a, of a significant correlation. Yeah, I see hundreds of patients on, on this medication, and really the incidence of macular holes has not been uh, observed, at least at my center. So I'm not, I'm not familiar with the direct association. Now macular holes can occur idiopathically, and they can be non-related to the medication uh, just coincidentally, but the actual correlation between direct effect, I'm not familiar with. There was once a study that goes way back in 2005. Uh, it was published in uh, um, one of the journals that suggested there was an increased risk of developing hole with tamoxifen. But again, in 2005, the doses were much higher. This was a very small study. There were only Eight patients in the study, and so I have to say, um, I, I would not suggest that that's a, a significant thing that we see m much of currently. And actually, oh, and actually, someone has just posed a question: What is retinopathy? So, if you could define that term for. 
So retinopathy is basically a, a dysfunction of the retina, and it can be either a vascular problem or a fluid problem uh, where you know, blood vessels become incompetent and cause the retina to swell, or blood vessels can be uh, injured and actually cause bleeding. So there's diff- different uh, effects that can affect the ret- retina that are all kind of grouped into basic retinopathy. There's radiation retinopathy where radiation causes blood vessels to break down and leak and dysfunction. Uh, there's diabetic retinopathy where the same thing happens to blood vessels and they, they, um, they leak. There's certain drugs that will cause the underlying tissues of the retina to dysfunction and cause small, what we call serous detachments, and that can lead to problems with the overlying retina. So it's a general term for a dysfunction of the retina, and it can be caused by multiple things. Awesome. Thank you. Very comprehensive. And, and Dr. Um, Fleischman, do you want to just comment on just tamoxifen? Because it has been out there for a long time, but it, um, anything that you have observed about that as well, just in terms of general issues with it sure. over time? Um, in my career, tamoxifen has become the drug that many people love to hate. Um, lots of people complain about the side effects, which are, are significant, but we've been able to um, use the tamoxifen maybe for shorter periods of time. Originally, there was a 5- to 10-year recommendation that's been shortened a bit for some patients, um, and uh, we've been able to get a handle at least a little bit on hot flashes and lubricating the skin. But it's just one of those drugs that, that, that many people um, complain about, and uh, we, we really heard, heard that and tried to work around them as much as possible. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and our next, um, thank you very much. This is a very excellent question, and um, we appreciate that. And our next question, um, Candace? And our next question comes from the line of Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Yes, thank you so much, Carolyn. Excellent seminar as usual. Uh, I had a, I'm had a 10-year breast cancer survivor, and I had cataract surgery last, uh, last year, and I was told that uh, my cataracts were due from massive doses of steroids that I had during chemotherapy. I had a year of chemotherapy. My question is, I did have a secondary cataract form. Can another cataract form in the other eye, and can a third cataract form from having passed steroids and also, I am taking fluconazone, which is Flonase, daily, twice a day, um, for uh, allergies and sinuses. I heard that causes cataracts, or maybe that could cause it again. And also, I have another question on alpha-lipoic acid that my doctor said, my surgeon, this eye surgeon said that I healed very quickly from the cataracts. From He believes it was the alpha-lipoic acid. So I'm wondering if there's studies on the eyes of alpha-lipoic acid. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Lots of questions. I'm going to ask Dr. Gumbo so if he can address just the, the basic question, um, and I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Gumbo so if you could address um, Stephanie's. Sure. Well, okay. I think the first thing is is that we know that cataracts can be caused by steroids, so um, and and usually they cause a particular type of cataract. Now, the challenge is as we progress in age, you can get that kind of cataract regardless. So when you see a patient. You can't always be certain that the patient's had a steroid-induced cataract, but certainly in a patient who's younger, who's been on a lot high steroid use, uh, whether it's for cancer or other issues, it would not be surprising if they saw a particular cataract and said, I bet you that's a steroid-induced cataract. Now, secondary cataracts are sort of a misnomer. 
because cataract implies opacity of the lens, and that lens is removed at the time of cataract extraction. We purposefully, the surgeon purposely leaves the back layer of the lens behind so that when the implant is inserted, the synthetic implant is inserted, that back layer is, is left in place. Now, that back layer can opacify over time, and that's what we call a secondary cataract. And so those secondary cataracts are less necessarily related to the steroids per se and really just are, are residual amounts of, of, the, of the lens material that opacify that back layer. So it's not exactly the same process. Now, the caller asked if uh, inhaled steroids can cause cataracts, and it's an interesting thing because I work in a head and neck department, and even many of my colleagues don't get too worried about inhaled steroids. However, there are some studies that suggest that frequent use of inhaled steroids can increase cataract formation. So it's not the same thing as oral steroids. It's certainly not the same thing as very high-dose steroids that are used in many uh, cancer regimens. Uh, but steroids are steroids in the end of the day. The other thing I'd point out is that continued steroid use also increases the risk of glaucoma. So if you're on chronic steroid use, again, this is a reason not only to check for cataracts, but also glaucoma, which can be a painless loss of vision if not picked up early. So that's an important thing to, to, to consider. Excellent. Thank you so much. And a great question. Um, there was another question from one of, well, actually, um, do we have another uh, telephone question, um, uh, Candice? As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question over the phone lines, you may press star and then one. We have, we have an online question from Susan, um, and um, I'm going to uh, give this question to Dr. Gumbos, and I'm sure others will want to add to it as well. But I am, I am 67 years old and have always been healthy. I was diagnosed with breast cancer last May. I had chemotherapy before surgery for her to positive stage 2B breast cancer, followed by lateral mastectomy and start radiation next Monday. So three days after surgery, Susan developed a floater in the middle of right eye. It is right in the middle of her field of, right in the middle of her eye and limits her vision. I also have closed ducts in my eyes and my tears pour down my face morning to night. Mm -hmm. My ophthalmologist has referred me to a specialist, but I can't get in until July. I am unable to drive and my vision is blurred due to thickness of tears. So I realize that for, we're going to try to give you some helpful tips, Susan, but of course um, we will refer you back to your treating healthcare team, but I'm going to ask Dr. Gumbos if he could just comment on this, just even for others on the call who might be also struggling with a similar issue. Sure. And did you repeat the question, or was it clear? No, I think there are a number of issues that I think m many of our callers and listeners can, can appreciate. The first point is, which is excellent, is a floater really needs to be assessed by an ophthalmologist with a dilated eye exam because as we advance in age, there are normal processes uh, due to the liquefaction of, of the center uh, jelly of the eye that can cause a normal floater. However, a floater in a cancer patient can be really many things. Uh, it could be a retinal detachment, it could be an infection, it could be blood, it could be associated with tumor involvement. There is a complex number of things that 
we are trained to look for. And so in the majority of cases, it's nothing serious, but it could be, and it should never, ever be ignored. Now, the floater itself, if it's a typical age-related floater, we generally do not proceed with any surgical intervention. Those things are generally left alone uh, for various reasons. Um, as it relates to the tearing, tearing can occur from many things. And one potential reason for tearing is the drainage system, as was described, uh, can be closed. That could be age-related. It could be treatment-related. And, and Taxotere is one of various drugs that uh, particularly can cause uh, this problem. Now, within ophthalmology, there are various surgical sub-disciplines. And one of the disciplines is associated with the eyelid and those structures. And I suspect that the patient was referred to that specialist. One thing, again, I would always caution the patient with is that from, from our perspective, this is, again, an elective procedure. So the first approach should be focusing on the care of the cancer, making sure that that management is addressed. And yes, there are treatments available for dealing with the tearing, um, but often those treatments are surgical. And so it's going to involve, uh, again, a collaboration, this multidisciplinary approach to involve both the oncologist, the patient, and the surgical ophthalmic specialist as to when the ideal time is to address this. And this doesn't minimize or somehow suggest that we're not seriously understanding how significant these symptoms are. It's about prioritizing which needs to be addressed first when you have multiple medical and surgical issues that need to be addressed. Dan, could I add one thing to that? Yes, please. So um, sometimes, as Dan pointed out earlier in, in his uh, talk about dry eyes, that tearing is a, a reflex tearing from the eye being dry, not, be, uh, not because the actual uh, drainage system is blocked, or it can be multifactorial where that's a portion of it and, and the dryness is a portion of it. If the vision's affected, sometimes it's more related to the eye being dry because the dryness can cause impairment of the vision, not just the tears or the, the big tear lake that gets in the way of the vision. And so sometimes if you address the dry eye issue, you'll get less reflex tearing and the significance of the uh, stenosis of the nasal lacrimal system is less. So it's, it's one thing to consider, especially if the vision is affected, that it might be related more to dry eyes affecting the vision than an actual um, a stenose tear duct system. So those things, uh, like Dan said, should be evaluated because it may not require surgery. It may just require an increase in your lubrication or a different type of a management of the dry eye, and you could avoid surgery. So those things should be addressed by a health, uh, an ophthalmologist that's familiar with those kinds of problems. That way you don't have unnecessary surgery that may not actually work. And I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman if you would comment on this the appointment not until July because it is actually May. It seems like a, I mean, we're, sorry, we're in March and it does seem like an awfully long wait till July um, for this particular, for Susan to have this going on. So um, sure. is, what are uh, your thoughts about that? And others well, as well, but I think just I wanted to see if Dr. Fleischman would, could add to this. 
that does seem like a long time away. <laughs> um, what I would suggest is first make sure that um, in the insurance world that the proper referral has been made and that the records were sent, and that often means dealing with the office staff of the doctor who's making the referral, uh, just to make sure that the they have a proper reference number for the referral if indeed your insurance requires one. Second, and once all that's taken care of and you're confident that the records were sent and the referral is there, um, make sure that the referral isn't a timed one that doesn't have to be done in 60 or 90 days from the date it was actually authorized. After that, I would take the human approach, which is to call um, up the and speak with the office manager or the scheduler in the doctor's office and ask if there's a waiting list. Um, sometimes that can be um, quite helpful, and you can get a call a day or two in advance saying we've had a, um, a cancellation for tomorrow or two days away. Can you be here on you know, Friday at 12 o'clock or something like that? So I think that if you take some of the unknowns out of this referral process, which is the insurance, the um, information being sent, and then as we're told like with the airlines, you know, being really nice and asking for people's help goes a long way. I would do the same thing with the schedule, the office manager, and be put on a waiting list, and perhaps that appointment can be moved up. And does this, sorry, I may have missed this, and I'm sure um, uh, this was addressed by Dr. Gumbos and Dr. Marr, but is there does this person have to see a super specialized ophthalmologist or can they see an ophthalmologist that knows them at least to start with to kind of help with this assessment just um, and uh, as well as per, as well as following all of Dr. Fleischman's advice is this um, I think the first step is, is is a good one to, to to go with a good general ophthalmologist who again has access to your to your information if it's Someone within the same institution or or, or, or medical center complex that's always helpful. Uh, they should be able to identify if this is something that requires uh, you know urgent immediate assessment or if there's a a serious problem or, or can uh, lead to appropriate uh, uh, deference to a subspecialist. Uh, it's not uncommon in ophthalmology though to uh, defer to subspecialists. We have multiple subspecialty areas, but I think determining between whether this is a mild, moderate, severe dry eye or a potential problem with inability to drain the tears properly, uh, a board-certified ophthalmologist, comprehensive ophthalmologist, should be able to, to, to make that determination. Dr. Marr? You know, I, I agree with that. I think that um, assessing the need for surgery, so so if it is a, a stenosed uh, a tear duct, you know, that would require a specialist that's familiar with the tear uh, drainage system. So that's important if that's needed. But the first step is to uh, figure out if that's needed. And I think that a local ophthalmologist that's familiar with you could probably, you know, weigh in of how urgent that that specialist is. And then that local ophthalmologist could then help with the advocacy if they needed to, if it had to be a super specialist, but then in addition to Dr. Fleischman's recommendations, that that, super, that, that, that uh, local ophthalmologist could then help to advocate for that appointment as well. Perhaps they know each other, colleagues. We definitely, Susan, this is an excellent question. I think there are many people probably on the call who are waiting for an appointment and wondering, you know, 
what do I do? And I, I hope that this, these suggestions that you've heard from all the different speakers, I'm actually going to ask um, Ms. Lewis if she would also comment on this, because I'm sure that this is something that comes up a lot on people calling our Hope Line at Cancer Care. I want to just comment on this issue of getting an appointment, which is often so difficult for patients to, to get appointments in a timely way. Sure. I think I think the what the doctor shared was um, very spot on, and what I would probably recommend as well, just making sure that it's not an issue with um, insurance holding things up. Um, although we through the hotline would not be able to directly coordinate uh, speaking to someone's insurance or their doctors, we do often help kind mm -hmm. of coach people on how they may communicate with their insurance, things like questions to ask and how to speak to the right person to sort of navigate that. Um, I would definitely also second the recommendation of just trying to speak to the doctor's office again and um, certainly in a very polite way kind of explain the situation and see if there's any possibility of being seen sooner, um, definitely seeing if there's a waiting list they can get on or ask if there's anything that might um, bump up that appointment. I think that sounds like an excellent idea. Um, but as I said, we often speak with people about um, how to sort of navigate calling insurance, who to speak with, some ways that um, you can communicate what you need, and we're definitely happy to help uh, talk with people about that through the hotline. Thank you so much, and um, thank you. It's excellent questions, uh, and I hope this has been helpful to you, Susan, and others on the call. And our next question um, is a phone question. Um, uh, Candace? And our next question comes from line F. Patty P. Your line is now open. I just am wondering, you talking so much about dry eyes, but what about those of us that have, have the watering eyes that just run down our face constantly and the idea that, um, like I lost all my eyelashes, most of my eyebrows during treatment, and it's been going on for two and a half years now, and I have talked to the ophthalmologist. I've tried all the things they've suggested and uh, the lubricants, the, the tear, putting the uh, ducts in, the tear ducts, uh, the, and nothing has worked. Thank you for that question, then, Patty. I'm going to ask Dr. Gumbos, could you start with that question? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, I would, I, I think it's great that you've, um, uh, you know, advocated for yourself. You've found people. You have had this assessed and reassessed. One of the things that we started out was by saying, look, you know, first have the general comprehensive ophthalmologist review these things, and it sounds like you have to, to rule out various potential sources is it too dry is it too uh, is it is it not draining properly is there a problem with the tears as they're being formed if and again this is always a bit frustrating but but patients and it's hard and and, and I can't assess someone over the phone but tearing can be a can be a symptom of dry eye it's paradoxical but but you've heard us say this earlier tearing can be a symptom of dry eye I think, number one, if the problem is really dryness and you really have a chronic, chronic problem, then you might want to consider a tear, a dry eye specialist. They are out there. We have one at our institution. I know Dr. Marr sees many patients like this as well because chronic, severe dry eye has its own unique therapies. There are certain drops that can be used, uh, prescription drops, there are uh, prescription lenses that can be obtained. This is a highly specialized area of ophthalmology. The comprehensive ophthalmologist generally doesn't deal with that. It, it, it is a niche area. It's a, doctors that often deal with cornea or ocular surface disease. If the problem is truly that 
the eyes are producing too much water, which is, is, is not common, or that the drainage system is not correct, that ultimately, if the problem is really the drainage system is clogged, that is ultimately a surgical issue. And so if you've really sought that out, and it's very clear that this is a dry eye problem and you're not getting the relief that you want from even a specialized ophthalmologist, then sometimes someone who's a dry eye expert can address that. Because here again, some patients with cancer develop this sort of severe, irreversible dry eye. Often it's patients who have had severe radiation or to the ocular areas or a bone marrow transplant patients who develop a condition called graft-versus-host disease. And the other thing I, I'd like to add to that is sometimes it, it may be also the anatomy. If the lids are, are retracted or scarred um, from either graft-versus-host or other uh, toxic effects of the medications, they can be dysfunctional. And so you need someone to analyze the function of the eyelids because they're very important depending on you know uh, how they work. Um, and if they're scarred, if they're rolled in or rolled out, if they're too loose, all these things can affect how the uh, eye is lubricated. It's just like, you know, you can have a, a lot of water, but if your windshield wipers aren't working well, you know, you'll still won't see, you'll still have problems. So that's a part of, of the, the problem as well. And Dan also mentioned um, possibilities for contact lenses. There's special dry eye contact lenses that have to be fitted by um, a specialist that can be worn for long periods of time and protect against um, the environment uh, when you don't have your normal uh, tear production or function of the lids. And so all those things are options, but you need a, a person that's familiar with that and has a specialized. So if you've exhausted all the normal routines, then I think you should go to the next level and get those other things assessed and maybe you can find some relief. Well, this is really extraordinary. I have to say these are the most amazing questions we've had. And there's one last late-breaking question before we conclude the call and bring it to a close. But this question is, um, I think, one um, from Shelley. I am a 56, I'm 56 years old and just finishing my second round of chemotherapy. I'm going to ask Dr. Gombos if you would start this one. I am 56 years old and just finished my, chemo, my second round of chemotherapy. I have noticed a big change in my vision in terms of blurry vision and double vision. Does this go away after treatments or do I need to seek treatment? now. So again, this is a general, we're going to have to address this in a general way um, for you, Shelley. We're going to ask you to then go back to your treating healthcare team, but if you could give some guidelines, Dr. Gumbos, around this one, and then I'll ask so, the other speakers as well. Yeah, blurriness uh, is not uncommon for certain treatments uh, of certain therapies, but when I hear double vision, that is definitely something that could be a significant problem, and I would not ignore that in the least. I think, when it, and, and it needs to be teased out if it's truly blurry or double, but um, that is something that I would definitely bring immediately to your care pr practitioner and to sort of tease out whether this is something that requires further assessment. Uh, because it's one thing about seeing, there's another thing about how the two eyes are seeing in parallel in conjunction with each other, and double vision uh, can, can be a significant problem, can be a serious problem. So it sort of needs to be teased out further from that uh, perspective. Again, it's not uncommon to have blurry vision symptoms, but never just assume that these symptoms are what are, 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 what are expected with the therapy. I would definitely discuss this at a minimum with your oncology team uh, in the setting of the rest of your care. 
Excellent. And does anyone want to add to that? Okay. No, I think the, the double vision is, is important to assess whether it's truly double vision. If you close one eye, do you still have the double vision? That's one quick check to see if it's really double vision because um, if you, it's hard to have double vision out of one eye. And if it is, it's, it's from a different set of disorders versus the motility or the way the eyes move. If that's affected, that kind of shifts the ophthalmologist's um, investigation into a different area. And you know, some of them can be serious, some of them can't, uh, aren't serious, but uh, that does need to be addressed. Well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call today. I, I must say I want to thank all of our speakers. Um, they've all been wonderful. And I also want to thank our participants. I mean, you have asked really remarkable questions today. Um, I have to say that we've, we've done a few of these programs, and I have to say the questions today have been far more complex than ever before, So, um, and I hope we'll be doing more of these programs. So I, this is clearly a, a great need out there, and I think that um, your questions um, identify how important your, this need is. Now, I did tell you that I would, um, for those of you who didn't get to ask your questions or have a question that comes up over the next couple of days, so in terms of any medical questions you may have, of course, we do recommend that you bring it up to your healthcare team. Of course, they are the most important people, they're right there, they're your team, your oncologist, the oncology nurse, you want to mention it to them right away. But then you also do want to, um, uh, and of course your ophthalmologist as well. However, some of you may wish to get information somewhere else for your questions before you take them to your physician or in a conjunction with that. So we often recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or the, uh, for those of you who prefer to go to the website, it's www.cancer.gov. They have a live chat feature, and you'd be able to pose your question, and they would be able to help you get answers to those questions. For those of you who wish to pursue further help from Cancer Care, we simply, of course, to either join a support group, get some counseling services, either get some practical or financial assistance, join one of our upcoming workshops, what are one of our publications or fact sheets, then I would suggest you contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or that you would visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. I want you to know that you're part of the Cancer Care community and we are here to help you. And we are simply a phone call or website away from you and definitely just utilize those services. They're free and they're available to you. And if we don't have the help that you need, we will definitely refer you to places that can help you. Um, um, and I do want to call to your attention a program that we have coming up on Friday, March 10th this week on living with cancer throughout the cancer journey, which might be of interest to many of you on the call today. So I just wanted to call your attention to it. Some of you have registered for it, but if you haven't, do take advantage of that. Again, thank you for your being on this call today. And you will get follow-up from us in terms of valuation and also follow-up resources as well. So thank you all. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may not disconnect. Everyone have a great day.